Now if you take your Bible and turn to the companion passage to that passage which Bruce just read in Colossians chapter 3. I want to bring a, a message entitled, Put on Diversity. Put on Diversity because Christ is all in all. Each year on this weekend, I preach a sermon on the need of repentance in the area of our hearts that still harbor racist thoughts and ideas. And the sermon also calls for Grace Fellowship to extend the gospel in our community through seeking real relationships with people of every ethnic group. Grace Fellowship has the opportunity to become one of the most diverse congregations in our community because we hold to the longest running, most biblical tradition known as Reformed Theology. Now you may scratch your head at that statement and you may say, now how does Reformed Theology and racism have anything to do with one another? And so I introduce you, as Aaron was telling you, to a book uh, that I highly recommend each of you read. Written by Anthony J. Carter, graduate of RTS Seminary. Um, and the book is called On Being Black and Reformed, A New Perspective on the African American Christian Experience. In this little book, Anthony convincingly argues that the Reformed Church is the only church where all of the experiences of racial tension in the United States of America can be biblically explained and the people can be offered hope of unity in Christ. It's the only, only place where it can be done biblically. And I say biblically, and he says biblically because I want to differentiate between what I'm doing and what you're going to see being done, though I'm not absolutely against it, and other times you've heard me say, I, I dearly support the weekend that we're celebrating today, uh, I mean tomorrow, known as Martin Luther King Jr.'s Day. I support that. But what I'm talking about today is different from what the world will do tomorrow when they put on a false unity for the cameras. When they march in the streets holding hands only to go back to war tomorrow. Are to go into silent lives of ignoring one another in their daily lives. So what I'm talking about, and what you may witness all over America, though what you'll witness tomorrow is a good thing, it's not the best thing. It's not the greatest thing. And the reason they can't attain to the greatest thing is because the center of their unity is about dismissing the differences. And coming together over some other cause besides Christ and the gospel. The only hope we have in this country or around the world for true ethnic diversity, people living together, not denying where they come from or their experience, but all equally saying, I am who God has made me to be. But now in Christ, I'm a new man. That's the only hope for real unity. That's the only hope. To cross barriers which our society has set up for us. Okay? And if you don't approach life from a biblical, from a, from a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, and I'm going to say reformed perspective, you have very little hope of ever getting to true unity. You have very little hope. Why? And I'll let Anthony say it because he says it so well. He says, 
It is through the basic truths of Reformed theology that the black and white experience can be understood and reconciled. Now, I know I'm picking on the black and white experience and there have so many ethnicities, okay? But let's don't play ignorant. That's the groups of people that have struggled the most against one another in our setting, okay? Not that others haven't struggled, but that's been the biggest struggle for us. Only in Reformed theology do we find that the biblical truths of God's sovereignty, man's total depravity, and Christ's sufficiency are held together as the foundation for understanding all events in this life. That's why we can have real unity. Because we're not coming together saying, oh, let's all just forget what's going on and let's forget what might go on in the future. But we're coming together saying, owning the fact that we all are sinners, all of us. And we repent of that sin and we run to Christ and we hold on to him together and find unity in him who is sufficient to overcome all of my prejudices, not only racially, but economically and, and, and in so many other areas. We could expand it even further, but for time we won't. So the only hope we have for real unity and what the purpose of doing this every week, you may leave, I know people leave every week saying, let's just let it alone. Stop talking about it. Just let it happen. The reason we can't do that is it is so in our nature to fight against unity that unless it's addressed and from this very real place of racial diversity, unless we address it to let the status quo go on, will only divide us further. To act and pretend as if we don't still struggle in this area will only make the bridge have to be that much longer and wider to get us to where we need to be in Christ. In the evangelical church, information coming back to those who ask for it is this. In the predominantly white, conservative evangelical church, less than 20% of the adherents in those churches believe there are any racial problems, real racial problems in our country any longer. And yet if you poll the conservative, evangelical, predominantly black American church, it is over 80% will say the problems still exist. So what I'm saying and suggesting is that for a long time now, we've kind of been in this cold war when it comes to race, and we just don't talk about it anymore. It's not polite. Don't bring it up. It just causes problems. And what you see is a gap that just keeps getting wider. What we have to do, Grace Fellowship, what I need to do, what you need to do, is we need to hold on to Christ, repent of our natural tendencies, and cling to Him to make us a new man that is very diverse. That is very diverse and sees the world through gospel kingdom lenses, not through our nationality or our ethnic group. So, unless they tell me to stop, every year we'll preach on this. Because I think it's something that will always be with us. My hope is that through the Spirit, Grace Fellowship will become a church that is completely integrated. I not only hope to one day look at the congregation and see black and white faces, I hope and pray that I will see red, yellow, brown, black, and white faces all sitting together, all intermixed, all worshiping Christ. I hope and pray that I will see not only the racial differences, but see upper, lower, and middle class people sitting together, worshiping Christ from the depths of their heart because He is their God, He is their King, and He has brought real unity into our lives. And I know, I know that although there may be some that don't quite understand my bend on this issue, I know that as a majority, you want this same thing. I know you do. I see it. 
I see it, I hear it, and I'm beginning to see God's work in making it happen. Because what has to happen is we have to have a spirit-driven unity. God's the only one who can make it happen. We can talk about it, we can pray about it, we can repent, we can hold on to Christ, but we can't make it happen in our own strength. It's His strength. And it's beginning to happen. Our church is becoming more diverse in age. Older people are beginning to come into the congregation. This congregation has traditionally, although it's not a long tradition, has traditionally been very, very young. And now more and more people are coming of all age groups. And that is beautiful. That is wonderful. We want to celebrate that. More and more people are coming from upper, middle, lower denominations all through our community. We need to celebrate it. And and, and I want to point this out to you. There are more and more stripes of color in our congregation. And i got to believe that that not only makes me happy and makes some of you happy, but it makes God happy. He celebrates it. And so I want to commend you because I already see God working. And I'm not chiding and I'm not beating and hope you don't take it that way, but I'm trying to encourage you to go further, go further than you ever believed it was possible in Christ. That's what this is. So Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11 so this is a biblical, topical message, okay? We can't just give I have a dream speeches. We have to tie what we believe to the Bible. If it's not a biblical thing, then we can't do it. We, we're bound by the Bible. It is our authority. Look what he says. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. You'll see the parallels with what Bruce read. Paul says, if then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. From that section, I want to preach a point, which is, we must seek the things that are above because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's the first point that I want to bring out. I'm going to have three, or actually four, big points. And as everybody knows, lots of little, little bitty points to go with it. Okay? So the first point of the sermon is we must seek the things that are above because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So let's look at the text. If then, that clearly tells us to look back into chapters 1 and chapters 2 to find the if then. He's reasoning based on his theology, a practical outflow of the theology. He's making a statement about life now in verses chapters 3, chapters 4. He's going to really push us in, in the ethics area of our life. Paul does it all the time in his letters. Big theology, deep truths that drive us to a new ethic of living, a new way to live, an outflow of the doctrine. We were talking in the hall, Alicia and I were this morning, and, and Rod. One of the biggest problems we all face is we have a lot of heady doctrine that never makes it out into our lives. So we have to ask the question, just because you know a lot, does that mean you're saved? Because what salvation does is it brings a new king, a new ruler into life, because you've been raised from the dead with that ruler and now he's living in and through you. And it should change the way you live. The status quo can't continue under the reign of Christ. 
If you look at your life prior to Christ and your life after Christ and you say, well, I don't see a lot of changes except I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, I joined a church, I go to fellowship meals where they have lots of good cooking. I have kind of a new circle of clique of friends that I hang out with and I've told myself I'm not going to do a lot of bad things. If that's all there is in life for you, then you have to go back and ask, have I really been saved? Or am I just in a new culture, a new subculture of America? Christian. Because when people get saved, look what the text says. They are raised with Christ. He reasoned already, you died with Christ. And if you died with Christ, now he's saying you've been raised up with him. You lived an old life and had an old man which was crucified with Christ. And it is not Christ who lives, he says in Galatians. But Christ is not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me is now living. And the life I once lived according to the flesh no longer exists. Is that the description of you? Would you say, as you look at your life, overall, I live a new life. I'm not the same man, not the same woman, not the same child that I was before I say I came to Christ. And if you look at your life and say, well, there's a little bit of category change here or there. I got some new buddies. I drink coffee now instead of a six-pack on the weekends. But other than that, I'm pretty much the same guy. I think the same way. I act the same way. you got to ask the question, have you been raised with Christ? Did you ever die with Christ? And now I want to introduce to you how this applies to us. If you're in the camp of let's just leave everything alone with the races and just get along and live the way we've always lived, you've got to ask, has Jesus, have you been raised with Jesus? Because he doesn't live that way. You say, how do you know he doesn't live that way? Because he must needs go through Samaria. And when he went there, he found the most disregarded person in their society and asked her to have water with him. So I know my king and your king doesn't live racially divided life. So if you're saying, I'm happy where I am, racially divided, all white, that's me, and you just ought to be okay with it because I'm okay with it. No, Jesus isn't okay with it. And, and excuse me, but he didn't, excuse, he didn't use my excuse, of, but that's the way I was raised. Not an excuse. Not an excuse. Because women, if your husband came in just having committed an affair and said, well, that's just the way I was raised. Would you say, oh, well, that makes it different then. Fine, live that way. No, you'd say, and your point? And racism is a sin like adultery. It is a sin. And it is an abomination to the gospel. It's not the gospel. Okay? So we can't sit back having been raised with Christ, having died, the old man died, the new man raised with Christ. We can't sit back and fall back on our nature and say, well, that's just how I was raised. That's just where I grew up. That's just the time in life I live. Maybe it'll be different in the future, but for me it's the same. No. No, it's not the same. Not if you're in Christ. Because you now, look what he says in verse 1, have been not only raised with Him, but you've been seated with Him. You're now positionally in the heavenly places. Positionally. Not physically, but positionally. So what does that mean? We're going to talk about it in just a little bit to steal my own thunder. It means heaven is the most diverse place in all of our imagination. And if it is, and you're positionally seated there, 
then you're not happy living in a segregated world. Because your heart is at home with Christ in heaven where it is very diverse in every way. And if your heart is there, you will be there also. And you may not can fix all the ills of the world. And you may not can change everything about your world outside of your home. But you can change your home. And you can be part of the change in Grace Fellowship. And then that can become a beacon, a foothold on the beach for God's kingdom to come to Anniston, to Oxford, to Jacksonville, to Piedmont, to Ohatchee, to all the surrounding areas. Because you've been raised with Christ, you're now seated with Him in the heavenly places, and the old man's now gone. So we have to seek the things that are above where we're really seated. We are pilgrims in this land. Pilgrims don't abide by the customs of the world. They walk through the world with the ethics and the customs of heaven. And they look like aliens in this place. So... We have to, how, how can we do this? Verse 2, very practical. Set your mind on the things that are above. You, 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 you and I have to begin to think like Christ. How do I think like Christ? Open His Word where the mind of Christ is contained for us. And study it. And pray it. And it will change you. The Word of God is for us the mind of Christ. It's not some nebulous thing for Paul out there somewhere. Some spiritual philosophy. It is a book with real black words on white pages for you in English. This is it. And I would encourage you to go back to the original language as much as you possibly can. But this is it. This is the mind of Christ. We have it. As best we're ever going to have it, we have it right here. So go there and let it change and transform you as you are seated in heaven. Now your mind is in heaven. And you become eternally good for your community when your mind is in heaven and your heart is in heaven and your position is in heaven and you live that way. You become eternally good. Listen, ban from your vocabulary, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Ban it. That's a lie from hell. The reason we're no earthly good is because we're not heavenly minded. If we were more heavenly minded, we'd be more useful to God in this world. We need to be more heavenly minded. More people of the Word. More people pressing for the kinds of change the Gospel brings in my life, in your life. Sharpening one another so that we might look like the audience of heaven in this audience. Because we are raised with Christ and we're seated with Him and our mind is now in His mind, in the Word of God. Because we've died and we're hidden in Christ and He's coming. My last minor point in here is, listen, you can resist the changes I'm talking about. And when you die, you will face Him or He will come to you and you will face Him. And He's not going to gloss over our prejudices in any area. He's going to have a talk with us like he did Peter. When he says, Peter, would you call unclean what I've called clean? Go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's revolutionary in Peter's world. That is a much bigger bridge to build across a much wider gap, Jew and Gentile, 
than black and white or Caucasian and Hispanic or Hispanic and Chinese. The, the difference between Jew and Gentile was like the Grand Canyon. What we experience is like stepping across the Mississippi River at worst. Sometimes it's so simple as stepping across a creek in your backyard. That's how small the gap is if we would just step across it. But we have no excuse, do we? God didn't let Peter fall back on how he'd been trained. God challenged the way he was brought up and said, No, no, I know how your father's taught you, but are you telling me as God that I can't call something clean? You're going to disagree with me? And so... If Peter couldn't use the card of that's how I was raised, we sure can't use it, is my point. So, here in this first point we see we are raised with Christ because we have died with Christ. Our life is in Him. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places and He's coming again. And when He comes, all the things that are of heaven will be of the new earth. It will be a new kingdom. And that's what we'll live in. second point comes from the second paragraph. As we look at this text, he drops down. Look what he says in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. And when you were living in, in and then you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. There's no explicit mention of racism in this text. So why would a biblical pastor, preacher, teacher, why would he choose this text to talk about racism? Because... I'm going to contend at the end, and I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. You can't understand all of the practices of evil which they once practiced until you read verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Implicitly, what Paul says is, put all these overt Things which you are doing with your hands out of practice with the old man dead, crucified. Now you're a new man. Live new. Don't live old. And the implicit sin of believing you're better than another race because there's differences, put that one away too. That's what he says in verse 11. There's explicit sin. And many of you, as I said last year, and I are not guilty of explicit sin when it comes to racism. We don't tote signs. We don't bar people from our church. We aren't mad that people move into our neighborhood that look different, act different than us. But we are guilty of implicit, passive racism. Because we keep saying, well, just let status quo stand. I kind of like it. I'm comfortable here. And Paul says, no. At the foot of the cross, you lock arms and hands with people who are Jewish and Greek. People who are Gentile, and not just Gentile, but they're barbarian and they're Scythian. We're going to get to the point of that in just a minute. He gets very specific for a reason. 
Free and slave. Male and female. So the second point is, we've put off the old man with all his earthly desires and sins. With all of them. He lists them here, and they're all listed equally. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, all of those dealing with all of the sexual sins. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, all of it's gathered up in those things. Lust, all of it. All of it's right there. Those sins are of the old earthly way. Don't be guilty of them. Evil desire and covetousness. And that's idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That should scare us. It's meant to scare us. If you're practicing sin today, that statement should shake you to your boots. The wrath of God is coming because of you. I enjoy the interchanges that I see sometimes on a field of sports. It always makes me chuckle inside to see the little 200-pound cornerback run into the 330-pound offensive lineman. It, it, it tickles me because they generally hit like a brick wall and fall off. The difference between big and little on the football field is nothing in comparison to a big God dealing in wrath with his small creation. It's not even, he's not even in the same category with his creation. And when Paul says, you practicing sin are going to incur his wrath, it should shake you to the very core of your personhood. Do I really believe I'm big and bad enough to deal and to handle the wrath of God? That's the question you've got to answer. About explicit sins, and I'm incorporating verse 11 to say implicit racist sins. You want to hold on to your prejudices in all the areas of economics and race and all that, then you must, and chauvinism, you must be ready to withstand the wrath of God. If you willingly say, I'm going to do this, and he's not going to change that area of my life, Paul says the wrath of God's coming. And just as an adulterer should give it up, give up adultery and run to, run to union with his wife, we who are guilty of prejudices should give them up and run to Christ. Why? Because in Christ all is made into all. Unity is found. So I'm not saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be a better person. I'm saying run to Christ. Run to Christ and lay down the sins of your life. Whatever they are, today we're just emphasizing one sin that is alive in us, unfortunately, because the old man is still at war in our being. Don't do these things. Put them to death, he says. It's interesting. When you compare this to Romans 8, he's saying, put to death the things that are of the flesh with the Spirit. Put them to death. So it's not passive, it's active. It's active. 
It's not, well, I'll just kind of rock along. God will change me as he wants to. This is a call to active call to righteousness. Put the sins of the flesh to death in you with the spirit, by the spirit. Third point, we've put on the new man, which is in the image of God. Verses 9b through 10, where I kind of broke off last time. He says, seeing that you have put the old self, put off the old self with his practices, and you've now put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The main reason that is not acceptable to be okay with your prejudices, my prejudices, is because all humans are created in the image of God. All of them are created in the image of God. It's a creational order. It's, it's reason like this. Adam and Eve are our parents. And in Adam and Eve, we all fell into sin. The image of God was twisted and marred and fallen. But praise be to God, Paul would say, you have a new Adam, the second Adam, Christ. And when you are in him, then you have been renewed into the image of God. Not broken, not fallen, but you have a new image, the original image. You've regained it through Christ. In the garden, there was one family, and in the church, there's one family. Every time, as a matter of fact, God works, I was talking with Aaron about this, He works, in a sense, from little to big to little to big to little to big. And at the end, there's going to be a difference. In Revelation, we see He goes from small to ever-expanding. It has no end. His kingdom has no end. All the races are there in Revelation 7 around his throne. And so God started with one race. It's called mankind. That still exists. The blood coursing through all of our veins courses because we are sons of Adam. But we are also sons of the second Adam who has demolished the barriers that we imposed on ourselves as sinful people and has called us back to one family, which is the church. That's why I say in the church is the only place on the earth where true diversity can exist in the church all the other ones are copycats all the other ones are second rate the only true diversity is here in god's family so in verses 9 and 10 he reasons that you've put the old man off you've put on the new man and now you're renewed after the image of hit of of your creator So finally, we are now free from social barriers. We are free because Christ is all in all. As I end, I want to say, different from others who may speak on this topic, it is not helpful to deny that there are differences. It is not helpful to deny that there are cultural and ethnic differences. When we say things like, I don't see color, the person you say that to knows you're lying, and you know you're lying. And he's already said, don't lie to your brothers. There are real differences. Look at verse 11. 
Paul does not say, you can reason it this way. It's easiest in this category for us. Now you're no longer male and female. He's not denying the existence of a difference between females and males. There is a real difference between males and females. Would we all agree with that? I hope so. If not, we need to have another message. A lot of the church is trying to deny it, aren't they? Trying to raise boys like girls and girls like boys. That's foolishness. There's a difference between men and women, and God celebrates it. It is different. He made it. It's beautiful. So Paul's not trying to deny differences. What's he saying? He's saying there's level ground. There's equality in Christ. You both are in the image of God. You both are his children. He loves you both in Christ. That's what he's trying to say. So now apply it to the other categories. Do you see the point? Now apply it to the fact that there is not Jew or Greek. And there is not barbarian or slave or free or Scythian. He's not saying there aren't barbarians in the world. Which, by the way, barbarian means this. In their world, if you did not speak Greek and you did not take on Roman culture as your culture, you were a barbarian. If you kept speaking your native tongue, you were a barbarian. If you would not submit to their customs as Romans, you were barbarian. They, that, that basically included everybody outside the Roman Empire. They were all barbarians. Scythians were barbarians who were uneducated and were the closest thing to slaves that that's where most slaves came from, was from the Scythians right around the Black Sea. They were poor folk from the wrong side of the track, and they were barbarians. They're the lowest of the low, Paul's reasoning. For, he's saying, look, at the cross, if you're a Scythian, you know you're a Scythian, but now you are equal to the Jew. Can you even imagine the power of those words coming from a racial Jew, a man who ethnically was a Jew, for him to say and mean it, barbarians and Scythians and slaves are my brothers in Christ. That's why I'm saying the Grand Canyon was spanned when Jews and Gentiles were brought together. So all we got to do is step across a creek. Our differences are minuscule, little. They're real, and we don't need to deny them, but they're small. Listen, there's hope, is what I'm trying to tell you. If, what Paul's reasoning is, if God has bridged the gap between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and barbarians, Jews and Scythians, if he has bridged that gap, you got to be kidding me that he can't bridge the white Hispanic gap in America. you got to be joking when you say that a church service can include all ethnic groups in one celebration of one king. you got to be kidding. That's what Paul would say. That's so sad it's laughable. Get with it. The most unique body in all the earth is God's bride for his son. And we're privileged to be part of it. So all I'm saying is, he is our all in all. And now he is the bond that bonds us together. Now, practical application as we finish. One, we as Grace Fellowship, we as Grace Fellowship need to repent 
of our sin, our own sin and the sin of our, of our ethnic minor, majority against minorities. Both the things that are outward and the things that are internal. We need to repent of it. We need to own it. We don't need to play games and excuse it. We need to say, it's real. It's in me. And I hate it. I hate it. I see it as a sin. I hate it. First step. Second step. We need to proactively seek relationships with people from every tribe and tongue and ethnic group as far as it is allowable within our power. You might not confine people from Indonesia in your neighborhood, but start in your neighborhood and be as open as you can be in your workplace and be as open as you can be. I want to tell you about an encouragement. She didn't know I was going to do this. She'll be embarrassed. It is so encouraging when Alicia Davis steps out of her comfort zone and calls a Bible study at her house with people from all kinds of backgrounds, denominations, economic groups. She admitted this morning, I'm scared to death and I don't know what's going to happen when you put a holiness person in front of a fundamentalist Baptist in the same home trying to study the Bible together. That's exciting. That's proof that God's at work in our midst. So many of you in the college ministry have stepped across boundaries on both sides. That is a glory to God. That shows He is at work. All I'm saying is be proactive in it. So many of you are praying about and some of you have already started the journey of adopting cross-ethnically. That's a wonderful thing. I want to encourage it. That's a great thing because it speaks loudly that we don't let barriers of race separate us in Christ. Okay? It preaches it to your family and our families of church and to our community. Second thing, proactively seek relationships with people of all groups. Of all groups. Be aggressive about it. Third, encourage our young people here at Grace Fellowship to choose their mate for life based on whether that person pursues hard after Christ. Period. No other caveats. Not how much money they've got. Not what race they are. Period. Does this person pursue Christ with all their being? Yes. Then you can marry that person. We don't just need to tolerate interracial marriage. We need to celebrate it. You say, oh, whoa, whoa. you're stepping in the kitchen now. We were okay. You just crossed the line. No. No, our culture crossed the line when we segregated the, the people. We crossed the line that God had laid so clearly in His Word that all people are on limits. They're not off limits if they're in Christ. And so when we created another artificial barrier, we crossed the line. All I'm saying is, as Grace Fellowship, let's cross back the other way. Promote it. Champion it. Be proud of it. Don't hide from it. And if you want to talk about all the discussions about the problems it might incur, I'll be glad to talk. It will cause problems because it will attack a very hatred at the core of our culture. It'll cause lots of problems when you start meddling there. Third thing, encourage our sons and daughters at Grace Fellowship to pursue marital relationships with those who pursue hard after Christ in the sense. 
Finally, fourthly, application to my life and your life. We need, we need to evangelize hard, push hard after evangelizing all races in our community and around the world. And, and in that point, train leaders, develop relationships and train leaders of all ethnic groups as far as we can. I'm so thankful that we have exchanged pulpits with a man like Anthony Cook. But that's just the beginning. That's just the first step. What I see in the future for us is us actually developing and discipling and them discipling us and our young people to become leaders in God's church. I foresee a day when the staff here will be ethnically diverse because we're discipling ethnic diversity. I foresee that day. And we need to pray for that day. We need to work for that day. We need to work for that day. So nothing says you're not a second-class citizen like saying, I want to help you grow in Christ so that you can lead my church, no matter who you are. That's a beautiful thing. And I hope we long for that day. So I, I know that some of you will struggle, and I understand that. I've struggled a lot. And I want to encourage you to struggle with us. Struggle with us. Don't walk away. Struggle with us. And we will be in Christ because He is all in all. Let's pray. Father.